Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I had a client 30 years ago who every time I would see this man, I would tell him about a picture I just sold to the Getty or to the Met or the Louvre. And he would say, you're such a fool. Once you sell to those institutions, you've taken that picture out of circulation. That was Alan Saltz, director and head of paintings and drawings at Didier Aron a gallery which finds its roots in the Aron Gallery, founded in 1923 by Jean Aron. Allen graduated from Colgate and received a master's degree in art history from Harvard. Among today's leading dealers in the field of old master painting, he studied with Harvard's leading experts in the field, the late Professor Sidney Friedberg and Conrad Oberhuber. Before joining Didier Aron in 1982, Allen was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where he worked with Pierre Rosenberg on a groundbreaking exhibition called France in the Golden Age. Allen, welcome to the podcast. Max, it's great to uh, be on with you, my fellow Harvard baritone. <laughs> well, we are going to be singing towards the end of the episode. Allen, you have been at the same job for nearly 40 years. I'm curious if there are any other dealers who can say that. Other than dealers who are in a family business, where it goes from generation to generation, I'm probably unique. And in fact, 40 years in any job in any field is quite strange these days. In the art world, I think you still have a few people at Sotheby's and Christie's who have probably been there 40 years. And at the Met, there are just one or two because they're buying everybody out. But I have had a wonderful career here. I've been at Didier Rome because it started because of a friendship and it continues to be a friendship. And we have weathered difficult times and experienced terrific times. And it's going to be my last job, obviously. You are your own old master in the end really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope that uh, when the time comes to retire, I can continue advising. I'm constantly meeting with younger people from college who see that in the booklet that the professional office provides, you know, mm -hmm. contact Alan Sauls if you want to go into the art world. I'm happy to speak to these young people all the time. And yeah. I'm planning on being involved in the art world until until I'm six feet under. Well, and then beyond, because your legacy will remain. But I let me start so. with an obvious question, Alan, because one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is exactly your persistence in this field, which to some extent, not being passed by, but in the last generation, the contemporary art world has really come to dominate the art market almost completely. So I'm interested how you would describe the health of the field of old master pictures in respect to that. Here at the gallery, we sell old master paintings, drawings, a little bit of sculpture, and 19th century pictures as well. I would say in the 19th century market, I've seen the biggest shift since I began here in 1982. And you see it when you look at what comes up for auction as well. Tastes have changed. The types of pictures that people bought 30, 40, 50 years ago just aren't what young people and even museums now want to collect. And, and it's really sad because we're dealing with some incredible artists and masterpieces 
yes, when something is the best, it still brings in people who want to buy it. The kind of material that we were selling in the 80s, you know, people come back to me and they say, can you give me an appraisal for inheritance reasons or mm-hmm. want to sell it? And when we tell them the number, even though the picture is as good as it was 40 years ago, they're mm-hmm. so disappointed. Unfortunately, that's just reality. I had a woman come in yesterday because she thought we still dealt in antiques and furniture. And she showed me some photographs and she wants to sell these things that she inherited from her parents. And they just don't have the value they used to have. We all say, yes, it's going to come back one day, but I think it's going to be long after we're gone. It's interesting in respect to human history. There's this thing called human history and the creative past. How is it that it just suddenly got subsumed under the waves of fashion, of the Kardashians, of social media, and vanished? It's got to be something more than just the art world that's changing. Tefaf, which originally was exclusively an old master sale, uh, an old master art fair, had to evolve into including contemporary and everything because, you know, that's where the world was going. But when you go to Tefaf in Maastricht, you still have hope and you believe in the old master world because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who come of every generation and they look and they buy. And that doesn't happen here in the United States where... Mm -hmm the number of people who look and collect are in the hundreds or the thousand. And yes, when there's a great exhibition of uh, Fra Angelico at the Met, people go. But uh, basically, America is interested in the 20th and 21st centuries. And I have always thought that a lot of this has to do with our parents' grandparents and great-grandparents, in that Mm -hmm. a lot of Americans who had great old masters and who collected them, let's say they came over from Europe in the 20s and then certainly in the 30s and 40s because of the war. And these were people who grew up with old masters and their parents and grandparents died in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And maybe the next generation was still interested in it because it's what was on their walls and it's what everybody loved. But Mm -hmm. all that blood is gone. And so young people today, they don't connect to it in that deeply personal way that our ancestors, I mean, not from long ago, but earlier generations did. And I think that has a lot to do with how collecting has changed in America. And a lot of it has to do with the obsession with brands. To your point, if an old master has name recognition and their works have been celebrated, they might get the attention of the masses. Let me point out one of these animals, which is Leonardo's Salvatore Mundi, which the Louvre recently accepted as an autograph work by the master. I know you don't share that view 100%. Can you talk a bit about your thoughts of having seen it in London? Yeah. It was included in an exhibition organized by Luke Sison, and Mm -hmm. it was obviously a coup for both the owners and for the organizers to have this 
newly discovered and rediscovered and restored picture there to compare it with all the other works that were securely by Leonardo. And when I saw it in a section of the exhibition where it hung near works by Boltrafio, who was an artist working in his orbit in Milan, it looked so much more like Boltrafio than Leonardo. Now, the picture is incredibly compromised from a condition point of view. Diane Modestini did a fabulous job Mm -hmm. pulling it together as best she could. And there are certain elements such as the hand, which are superb and beautiful and very Leonard-esque. And the rest, um, I had less connection to. And so for me, I couldn't say it's 100%. And as far as what it brought, you know, that price has nothing to do with reality. We don't really know who was... Just because two people bid on a picture doesn't mean it's worth that. That value, the next day it could have been worth uh, a third or a tenth or or whatever. I mean, I, right. I've dealt with so many situations where people say, oh, but but that picture is worth $50 million. And uh, I said, well, you know, it sold at auction for $50 million two nights ago. But if the man who bought it all of a sudden says he can't pay for it, and they go to the underbidder, and the underbidder said, well, I only really wanted to pay 30 what's it worth? Right. Well, that spoken like a dealer. And that brings me to a great insight I would love to have. When you walk up to a picture like that or any other picture, how do you start? What do you start doing when you're examining a previously unknown example of European painting? You know, after looking at at pictures seriously for decades, you have certain alarms that go off or excitement that goes off in your heart when you see and, mm-hmm. and you can feel quality even if you don't know who did it. I always approach something I'm kind of a skeptic and mm-hmm. I need to be convinced that something is really by the artist as opposed to immediately assuming it is and then trying to defend it. I look at a piece of art, if I if I respond to it in a good way, and it's something that we're interested in pursuing, then we have to start the research. We have to contact experts. We've had many pictures over the decades where we never, ever came up with the attribution, and it was very frustrating. And some pictures, you, unfortunately, you're never going to find the attribution. I'm talking about good pictures. I mean, mm-hmm. with, with less good things... Uh, in, in many cases, you have no idea who did it. But when you're looking at something that's clearly really, really good, and you can't come up with the name, it's maddening. But I think we all want to know, you're walking down the corridor of an 18th century palace, and there are dozens and dozens of paintings. What makes you stop in front of one? I would say that I usually respond to interesting subject matter. And the quality of of how the picture is painted. It can be filthy and you can still kind of look under there and say, wow, that's a really good picture. You know, hopefully the palace decides to sell it and you get to buy it and you get to clean it. And hopefully when you clean it, you were right. You know, people love to share their stories of, oh, I bought that picture and it was filthy and look how it turned out. People never talk about their stories of buying that picture and they cleaned it and they had to throw it back in an auction and and take a bath 
because yeah. it didn't clean the way they hoped it would. It's a far more challenging field than 19th, 20th, and contemporary. I'm not saying that they don't have condition issues to deal with, and, but we have to deal with fakes and serious condition issues and pictures for hundreds of years that have traveled on boats and horse and buggies. I mean, you know, and things 500 years ago weren't wrapped by Kaduck and Tate in air climate trucks and and brought from Italy to London. I mean, it, they went through a lot, these things. And to that point, I've walked through some major galleries with a black light, and it's very common to see passages having been retouched and in-painted or mm -hmm. even over-painted. Should museums make these restorations more visible or more commented on so the public knows, in fact, there is a lot of compromise in what you're looking at? Well, the most notable story pertaining to that would be what happened at the, the Yale University Art Gallery a few decades ago. Since the 19th century, they have had a, a wonderful collection of early Italian pictures. It's called the Jarvis Collection. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I think in the 60s or 70s, the head of the conservation department there decided to clean them radically to get down to what was really by Poiliolo in 1490 and no overpaint. They were hung. It was a disaster. Mm -hmm. The art world condemned them. And then in the decades after, they have slowly improved the condition, but in such a way that you can see what is original and what is not. I personally think that, especially when you're hanging in a, in a major museum, you should present the picture in as best a way as possible. I think online, there should be all the records of the restorations, there should be x-rays, there should be photos of the pictures stripped. But when you go to a public museum, you're not going to a museum about conservation. You're going to a museum to experience the works of art. And you want to experience them in the best possible way. You see so many objects of varying quality and condition. How many would you say that you're approached about turn out to be of real interest? I wish more. The sources just don't produce what they used to. I mean, I had a client 30 years ago who every time I would see this man, I would tell him about a picture I just sold to the Getty or to the Met or the Louvre. And he would say, you're such a fool. Once you sell to those institutions, you've taken that picture out of circulation. And there's <laughs> going to be, there, there will be fewer and fewer pictures of high quality for you to sell as time goes on. And it's true. Of course, what I used to say in reply which I was a little doubtful about, but now the world is changing, I would say, well, you know, who knows? 50 years from now, a major museum in Ohio may decide to close and everything is going to come up for sale again. And I think that as time goes on, a lot of old masters may come back on the market, sadly, as institutions decide they don't want to show them anymore. Isn't that happening right now with the deaccessioning kerfluffle and the fact that AMD said, 
all bets are off until April of 2022. Are you starting to see that happen with museums? I, I think it's just terrible. I mean, I, I looked mm-hmm. at this uh, child Hassam, which came up last yeah. night, um, which just sold. I mean, just sold yeah. it, it. It had a high estimate. But what a pity that that money is not earmarked for acquisitions. It can be, it right. can go for plumbing or whatever. And I'm totally against all of that. Well, you and I are curmudgeons in that respect, but thank God. We earned it well. We were in grad school together, as you pointed out, when dinosaurs walked the earth. How much did your studies then inform the expertise you draw upon today? They were essential. You and I had the opportunity to work with incredible scholars, professors, who had great eyes and who shared their way of looking and thinking with us. I mean, obviously, there was all the book knowledge that came with years of being down in the stacks, working on papers. But at Harvard, there was a real push to look. And looking is as important as reading, training your eyes and understanding quality. Those are things that only come with experience and you get better and better at it. It's like being someone who can blindfolded pick the right wine. You only taste the best wine after you've been tasting wine for a long time and you've tasted the good and you've tasted the bad. And it's the same with pictures. It's the same with antiquities. With time, you, you smell what's good. You, you smell what's bad. We also had at that time, a faculty that was not yet fully enmeshed in the premise that theoretical instruction in the history of art should take the upper hand over connoisseurship. I mean, essentially, Harvard was uh, still a little behind the curve, and then it went with the curve. And now I think they're, I mean, connoisseurship is definitely back. And it's back at Yale, it's back at Princeton. I'm sure places like Bowden and Dartmouth. I think the hood is certainly in that path and some other schools. I don't know about out West. I'm not sure that's I mean, the quite... Clark, definitely. I mean, they're, yeah. they're terrific at it. But there was a kind of negativity associated with this some years ago. It was felt to be Absolutely. A, we were, a spawn of elitism. Elite. Yes. Right. But I don't know when elite became a, a dirty word. Mm-hmm. I mean... In the old days, elite was, it was, you were proud to be elite. Well, I think part of what transpired was an overreaction to an assumption that this was the province of the affluent spawn of the ruling class, and they were just talking to each other. But I think, to your point, things are swinging back. Now, with leaving aside the academy, art museums, it seems that even encyclopedic museums, like the ones you and I have worked at, are devoting more energy to the art of our time and less to the art of the 19th century, let alone old masters. Do you foresee a change in taste down the road in museums? Uh, when you say a change in taste in museums, you mean in what they're buying or what? Uh, will, the, uh, will the world of pre-contemporary art, or as some in the academy call it, pre-C, meaning those other 5,000 pesky years, will it ever creep back into the major art museums that we care so much about as ascendant or critical or not just something you do occasionally to humor octogenarian donors? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, 
nowadays, it's so much about the numbers and getting people in. And you and I might get excited about a, a cycladic sculpture that's 18 inches high, but that isn't what people are going to rush to a museum to see. They want to see the new Basquiat. I just hope that institutions don't get caught up too much with these trends. You know, let's not forget about Terbruggen. But I'm interested in the nature of the art museum profession and where the reward system is, because so many of the boards are now populated by contemporary art collectors. And that's sure. driving so much of this, surely. Well, it'll be interesting, for example, to see how the National Gallery of Art in Washington evolves. That is an institution established late 30s, early 40s, solidly in old masters. They didn't collect drawings until the 1970s. And then slowly, they went into American art. Slowly, with the IMP building, they went into contemporary. And now, the National Gallery is trying to escape or break free from the stodgy image. Happily, Kaywin Feldman, after all, is a scholar who has studied both antiquities and European Absolutely. art, Absolutely. and she is so, uniquely equipped, I think, to make that place have both sides of its I, equation. I think you're right. I think you're right. But it's different from it was in that old buddy world uh, that was there before. It was just a, a little men's club. It's, it's changed. Museums in general are being run by people less like Kaywin, who have graduate training in art history, and people without it. And that even in your field, true expertise in museums is decreasingly found in curatorial departments or even universities. Is that the case in your sense, apart from Europe, where there is a system in place to reward that? But here in the States, is that the case? Well, but even in Europe, I mean, you look at the controversies with the V&A, where they want to merge departments and, and they've gotten rid of so many curators. I mean, how, how is a curator at, at a place like the, like the Victorian Albert to have any idea what's in the collection? I mean, how do you start taking care of the collection and presenting the collection in any kind of intelligent way to the public when you're so understaffed, you don't even know what you've got? It's happening at, at so many American institutions as well. I worry. I worry. Okay, but maybe there's a gold rush, Alan. Maybe this next generation that's coming out of the gate from places that are talking about objects as well as ideas, that are talking about history as well as the present concerns we are all quite preoccupied with, maybe there will be some students who will come your way saying, I want to apprentice. Don't you feel? Oh, sure. You know, I, I uh, a month or two ago, the Cleveland Museum had a two-day Zoom conference on European drawings. It was fantastic. I mean, mm -hmm. there were so many. I mean, each presentation was uh, 15, 20 minutes, and there must have been 30 of them over the course of the two days. I knew some of the people, and there were a lot of new young people I had never heard of before. Shame on me, but I, I can't keep track of everybody. And when you, when you see something like that, you do have a bit of hope because mm -hmm. these are people who uh, I'm sure they also, if they're a curator in uh, Houston or, or someplace, uh, they probably have to be the curator of all the drawings, not just the old. Mm -hmm. So they, they do know about everything. But I was so impressed 
with the the knowledge that some of these young people had. That is a happy note. Alan, are you writing a memoir? And if not, why not? Max, this is my memoir. <laughs> no, Alan Saul's in 30 minutes. This I mean, is, an, is, there, is, there, is there more to my life than these 30 minutes? Yes, this is um, an antipasto. Yeah, well, I've had some fantastic experiences over the 40 years with terrific deals, terrific people, and by people, I mean clients, but also people I've worked with. I mean, I'm so fortunate, as you are, that so many of our Harvard confrères went to great institutions, and and we've stayed in touch, and mm -hmm. those friendships mean a lot to me. But a lot of my stories, they're fun at a dinner table where I can be a little looser, but a lot of it would be indiscreet to speak about prices or clients. I mean, I, I have wonderful stories about clients who thought they were smarter than everybody and who made mistakes. And, but yet, it's not nice to, to share information like that. And at the same time, I don't only want to have a memoir with, where everything is positive, because that's just not reality. So, well, you told us you were a skeptic. So yeah. here's the point. You could write such a book with pseudonyms. You could, because we're all waiting to hear, Alan. You've got to get this new generation going. And unless you write this book, who the hell is going to write it? Well, um, but my book is my stories. It's not a, a general, I mean, I'm not going to write a, another book about the, the history of the Italian Baroque. No, we just want to know how you think, how you look at a picture, how you assess ah. it, how you go about in this extraordinary career, making these works enter the lives of all of us. And mm -hmm. today, we've had a tiny sampling of what will come in your inevitable book project that we're now assigning you as an audience. Okay, okay. This is, this is, this is heavy, Max. I know, but heavy sometimes is good. And with that, sir, yes. thank you so much for being on Artscoping this week. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Alan Saltz, director and head of paintings and drawings at Didier Aron. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.